Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Hannah Sussman. I swear, I'll protect you from now on. Yeah. <laughs> that and more, but first I want to say, hey, have you been over to the Risk store at risk-show.com slash shop? Right now, from June 8th until June 11th, it's 15% off everything there. And if you love what we do here on Risk and over at the Story Studio, the support of our fans could not mean more to us. It's crucial to our keeping all this running, and it is deeply appreciated. By becoming a member over at patreon.com risk, you'll have access to over 134 bonus stories, over 50 check-ins, including interviews with all of our staff and storytellers, many of our storytellers. You'll get the free online story studio classes that are available there and links to the video versions of some of our past live streams. So check out all of that and more at patreon.com slash risk. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Gabriel Roth and the Mirrors Behind Me Now. 
Folks have never been this excited about a show in a long time. I mean, I've been excited for many, many shows over the years, but this one, the first Risk hybrid show, which will be in person and live streamed, is on Thursday, June 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern, and it's happening at Caveat in New York City, our, our usual spot for putting on shows. We're returning there. And, of course, there will be, uh, you have to show uh, a COVID-19 vaccine card and all that sort of thing. All that information can be found at risk-show.com tour for tickets to the in-person event in the theater or the live stream as well. Now, we are calling this week's episode hear me roar most of you are probably too young to remember helen reddy's hit song i am woman hear me roar well i am not woman but still hear me roar if you don't mind now in a little bit we are going to hear a beautiful anecdote that D.W. Baldwin sent into us, we just re-ran a story he first told on the show a few years ago on our Thursday, you know, rerun spot last week. So we will have a little revisit with D.W. Baldwin this week. And before that, we are going to hear for the first time ever on the show, Hannah Sussman. Hannah will be seen in the second season of Truth Be Told in episode 8, and you can find out more about the show she produces, Mental Health Mondays, on Facebook. Just look up Hannah Sussman. This story touches on this theme that we are just so deeply mired in during this era. Bigotry. But told with such grace and humor and spirit, by Hannah. I think you're going to love this. Uh, she uh, told this at one of our recent live streams. So here she is now. This is Hannah Sussman with a story we call Fight, Fight, Fight. So my folks were Jewish New York artists transplanted in Albuquerque. Our uh, dinner conversations were loud and thought-provoking. So one night, my third grade girlfriend comes over and joins our family for dinner. And she said, my parents said that Jews have horns. So where are all your horns? <laughs> and I look at my pop like, what is she talking about? And he says, well, people think that Jews grow horns. And I asked, like a goat? And he said, no, like the devil. Well, I was expecting him to yell at her for saying something crazy, but instead he was calm. And he said, Jews don't grow horns. And she just shrugged it off and went back to eating dinner. That was the first time I heard that Jews had horns. I was the minority in my classrooms. I was affectionately called the Jew girl by my friends and classmates and the teachers. I just felt very special. 
And in second grade, uh, there were two Jews, and because we were so rare, we were highlighted in the Albuquerque Journal newspaper, showing us that we were lighting the menorah on Hanukkah. So it never dawned on me that anybody would look at me as the devil, or that anyone would want to get rid of me. But I got to tell you, a lot of people felt that way about the Jews. And I found that out in fourth grade Sunday school when the teacher said we were going to watch a movie. And we were all so excited because for four years we had been bored to death learning about the Babylonian War, which I still didn't know what it was about. Anyway, movies in the classroom were out of the norm. So one of the kids said, can we eat popcorn? And we all chimed in like, yeah, let's eat popcorn. But the teacher turned off the lights and turned on the projector. And the first thing I heard was a Nazi narrator. And then I saw Nazi soldiers beating and funneling these Jews boarding rail cars. And then I saw skeletal bodies with shaved heads walking around like they were in their pajamas, black and white striped pajamas, peering through the chain-link fences, and then those same skeletal bodies were dead, bulldozed into massive pits piled high with more dead skeletal bodies. I saw the showers, which were the gas chambers, and I heard my classmates whimper, and some of them just bolted out of their chairs just wanting to go outside and play and just forget what they saw. But I was furious. And I jutted up my hand and I started rapid fire questioning, like, why did they just stand there like cattle? Why didn't they fight back? They outnumbered the guards. Why didn't they grab their guns? But the teacher said that they felt that they could live with the beatings to save their lives, having no idea, ironically, they were going to a death camp. Well, we were terrified that that would happen to us. But the teacher said, oh, no, never again. Well, that happened to us Jews. We fight back. But this one kid, he was against physical fighting. He said, word fighting is better. Well, talking it out for those Holocaust Jews didn't work. And then I started to wonder, when do you know when to talk it out or when to physically fight? In fifth grade middle school, I remember being the only Jew, and there was this notorious bully girl. She was Chicano. She had long, black, wild hair. She always scowled, strutted around like a boy in her dress. Everyone stayed clear from her. One day, I was wondering, why is she walking towards me? Well, apparently, she uh, did some research on my first name. So she bobbed her head and she asked, Hannah, you're Jewish, right? And I bobbed my head back. Yeah. Well, she was pissed. Then why are you hiding your horns? Well, I just thought she was so stupid. But I decided I was going to talk it out like that kid in Sunday school suggested. I actually wish I had an iPhone and I could have just whipped out 
and showed her the cutaneous horn, which is a horn that grows on humans. It could happen to anyone, mostly no one. And then we could have laughed about it over some cream horns. <laughs> but instead, on the playground, I bent over, showed her my scalp, and I said, see, look, no horns. And she barked back and said, Sussman, I'm going to beat you up tomorrow. And she walked away. So I told my mom. Now, most moms would go to the office, the principal's office, and intervene for their child and protect them from bullies. Well, not my mom. She said, well, I guess you're going to have to beat her up. <laughs> well, I didn't know how to prepare for that, and I certainly didn't want to. And then I flashed on the Holocaust film and worried that if I didn't beat a fifth-grade bully girl... I would be letting down all of the Jews. So what happened was I became incredibly agitated the next morning. I put on my brown plaid dress, my honey mustard colored knee high socks, and my light brown penny loafers. My outfit was completely color coordinated. I did not know how to get ready for a fight, but I sure as hell knew how to get ready for school. <laughs> and when I got to school, my heart was thumping out of my chest and I couldn't see her. I was praying that she was sick. And then I remembered she was in another fifth grade classroom and I wouldn't know if she came to school or not until PE. And then there she was in PE, but it looked like she didn't see me and I was still scared shitless. And then the weirdest thing happened. I completely forgot about the fight because both of our classes played opposite each other in soccer, and I just threw myself into the game, and I was in the zone, and I scored the winning point. And my classmates were cheering for me and congratulating me as we're walking back to the classroom, and then I saw her walking ahead of me, and I remembered and so did she, because she suddenly stopped and threw up her hands like, oh yeah, I gotta beat up the Jew girl. And she turned around and I froze as I watched her charge me like a fucking bull. And she rammed her head into my stomach and all the kids gathered around chanting, fight, fight, fight. Well, the impact made my right arm swing over her neck. Now, back then, the girls' gym suits were these blue bubble onesies with these useless decorative buttons on the sides, just hideous things. Anyway, I saw that my right sleeve was caught onto an attached button. Unbeknownst to me, I have her in a headlock. <laughs> I am trying to free up my arm, so I repeatedly jerk back my arm, not realizing I am just choking her. <laughs> All the kids see her face turn red and I hear, Sussman's killing her! And they yank her off of me. <laughs> she is bent over, propping herself up on her hands, on her knees, huffing and puffing and gasping for air. Meanwhile, everyone is in awe of my amazing fighting skills. <laughs> I replay what happened in fast motion. 
and I see in my mind's eye why everyone thinks I'm this great fighter. But I know it's because of some fluky circumstance. Fifth grade bully just raises up her head, glares at me, and says, Wow, Sussman, I swear I'll protect you from now on. Yeah. And walks away. And I'm thinking to myself, why is she going to protect me? I just whooped her sorry ass. I mean, <laughs> unintentionally, mind you. But still, why? Why did she vow to protect me? I'm thinking it's some fight code that she had. She believed that I beat her fair and square, proving that I was stronger. And she respected that. But to save face, she deemed me worthy by publicly announcing her loyalty to me. I don't know. I didn't ask. I do know that the next time I saw her, she was playing kickball with the other kids. And she waved and smiled at me. I was stunned. And I was relieved. That night, my pop asked me how the fight went, which threw me off guard because I didn't tell him. Mama said, yeah, I told him you had to beat her up. Well, I knew I uh, lucked out. But what came out of my mouth was, I won the fight. Mama was pleased. Papa said, good. You see, when Mama was in elementary school, a kid came up to her on the playground and said, my mommy said you killed Christ. And she didn't know what to do. So she was glad that I was able to do something. And when my pop was in the Navy in World War II, he was thrown overboard because he was Jewish. He climbed up the rope ladder, emerged out of the water with a knife in his teeth. And nobody ever threw him overboard again. I realized that my parents weren't interested in instigating fights. They were everyday behearts, which means brave hearts in Yiddish. They were willing to talk it out or fight to defend their, their Jewishness. And I figured I was just like them. I was willing to talk it out or fight, even if it was by accident. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's September 4th, 2018, the night of the first anniversary of my wife's death. And I've talked about it before. I shared the story on Risk over a year ago about that experience. This story starts five years ago in an apartment in Woodenville. I'm laying in bed with my girlfriend, Kristen. We've been dating for about six months. Her apartment is filled with... This is kind of a follow-up to that. 
I hadn't been sleeping well that night. It was hot and I just had a thin sheet over me. The whole day I'd gone through and just kind of felt this edge like broken glass in my soul. But otherwise I was getting through the day just fine. I remembered how my wife died in my arms. I remembered the funeral home representative coming to pick up the body afterwards and driving it away. And I'd spent the last year just coming to terms with the reality that I was a widower. Somewhere around midnight, I was awoken out of a dreamless sleep by this long, sobbing wail in the darkness of my room. It rose up high, this high, keening voice just climbing up octaves and peaking, and then came down low, down the scale into these sobbing gasps, these great racking sobs, and then faded away into the dark and the silence. I sat there, my heart pounding in my chest as if I, I was trying to outrun certain doom. And cold sweat appeared on my brow and my palms were clammy. I forced myself to reach out of the bed and over to my bedside lamp to turn it on and I looked around the room, but there was no one there. So I rose up and got out of bed. My dog was laying in her bed near the open window. She was just stretched out like greyhounds usually are on their side, limbs relaxed, and she had one eye open and looking at me. And I could tell she was thinking, dude, what's going on? Why are you up? My dog didn't look like she was distressed. She didn't look like she had just been howling. She just literally looked like she had just woken up from sleep as well, do the light switching on and wondering if she needed to get up and join me for anything. I went to the door of my bedroom and I looked down the hall and in the darkness I didn't see any shapes. There was no apparition waiting for me, no vision of Kristen with pallid white skin and black eyes and long stringy hair just waiting for me, ready to rend my body apart in a flurry of blood and bone and drag my soul to hell. Or maybe she'd come hurtling out of the darkness from the open doorway, claws outstretched. We're so conditioned by these ghost stories that we see in Hollywood and horror movie producers have conditioned us to believe that hauntings always involve malevolent entities that resemble our loved ones or sometimes are actually our loved ones that when they die, they immediately turn into these hateful entities that want to tear us apart and drag our souls to hell. And even though it's ridiculous, that was what was running through my head along with the physical sensations of stress and fright. But I went to my bedside table and I turned off the lamp. Then I stood there in the darkness and waited. Looking around, heart just thudding over and over in my chest so hard that I could feel the vibration through my whole body. But Kristen was not there. She didn't come hurtling out of the darkness down the hallway towards me. She wasn't there suddenly standing behind me in a jump scare. There was no one there in my room. It was utterly silent. And I stood there because I wanted to see my wife again. Even, even if it was the worst possible situation and some wrathful shade resembling my wife had come up to kill me and they'd find my body in the morning, 
I didn't care because I'd get to see her again. To tell her I love her one more time. But she wasn't there. There was no ominous presence. It was just the heat of a late summer night. And to this day, I don't know what that was. Part of me thinks that she really was in the room, or that maybe that was a banshee, but there was no chill in the room. There was no black mist. There was no apparition. There was no shadows, nothing. I don't know. It could have been my dog. It could have been my dog having a dream, having a seizure. The noise could have even have come from me, and I, I didn't know it. I have no answers. It was a hot summer night on the first anniversary of my wife's death, and it hasn't happened since. I wish I knew, and I wish you'd have been there so I could see her again. Another day has passed me by And there's an island in the sun To see me This is Mike and the Mechanics behind me now, and this is the song that D.W. was singing to his wife on her deathbed, as he explained in that story called In Kali's Shadow that we re-ran last week, so we thought that that would be nice to be a reminder. D.W. actually pitched this anecdote to us for our Halloween episode, last October, but I thought, no, it's just, it's just too beautiful, beautiful in a different way than a Halloween story. So we held on to it and here it is this week. Folks, the next two day level one live online group storytelling workshop over at the storystudio.org is on June 26th and 27th. It'll be taught by Gail Thomas. So many great classes, so many great faculty members, classes you can take online with other students, one-on-one training, classes you can just watch as video programs alone, workshops on storytelling for business, And, of course, we have our actual corporate workshops for specific businesses. It is all to be found at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. 
It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes from me. A little while back, I talked at the end of one of the episodes about struggling with depression. Uh, you know, I don't know, five, six months ago, I, I tried changing up my meds situation around all that, and it resulted in a few brutal months of being way, way, way down at the bottom of the ocean. And so, in the midst of that, we had a live stream. And on the day of that live stream, it occurred to me, ah... I can tell that story about that one day. And it kind of amazed me as I was working through the story, because this is what happens when you start working your way through a story. Kind of amazed me how much of things I have still struggled with at the age of 51, things I have struggled with my whole life, encapsulated in one little story. You know, I've been reading a lot about the Enneagram, recently, the system of nine personality types. I took that test when I was 16, took it, you know, when I was 30, took it again recently. Every time I get type four, uh, the artist, the individualist, the romantic. And I'll tell you one thing, if you ever took that test and you got type four, you, you will probably recognize some of the phenomena at work in this story. So anyway, it has a funky title, but once you hear the story, you'll understand why the title is so odd sounding. So without further ado, here I am with a story we call Soccer Practice Cold Day. There are a lot of stories that a lot of us can think of, I think, where you kind of feel like, 
That story kind of brings up a problem with my psyche or my patterns of behavior or my history that I don't feel like I've completely solved yet. You know, the kind of stories that you take into the therapist and then you walk out being like, why the hell did I dig that up? Now I'm frustrated all over again about that damn thing I never figured out what to do about, right? <laughs> Those kind of stories. Now, when I created Risk in 2009, I had no knowledge of how storytelling worked. I decided to create the show and I decided I'll learn how to tell stories while doing it. Well, one of the first things I did was I created this long list. The list had a bunch of subheadings, 1970 to 1975, 1975 to 1980, 1980 to 1985. These sections of five-year intervals where I was just going to brainstorm on every incident that I could remember that seemed significant somehow to me. To this day, to this day, I still go back to that list from 2009 over and over and over again. And every time it's so daunting because there are dozens of story ideas listed there where I'm like, yeah, but that brings up stuff that I don't feel like I've kind of mastered yet in my psyche and my life, right? And so today I thought, you know what? Fuck it. Let's go to one of these. You know, I, I was looking at the list and I was like, oh, that day, that day, 1980, I'm 10 years old. Now, you've probably heard in other stories that when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with musical theater. And what I would do is I'd lock the basement door and then run downstairs, turn on the stereo, and I cannot tell you how emotional I would get. I would perform the bass roles. I would perform the soprano roles. I would get furious and I would get weepy. It was really this um, kind of working out <laughs> of, of emotional stuff that I just didn't know what to do with elsewise. Because, you know, nowadays, every grade school has stuff to do for the theater kid types, right? But in Southern Ohio in 1980, your choices were sports and sports and sports. And that was very much it, right? Now, I was just a weird kid and super, super aware that I was weird because I was regularly told that by my brothers and sisters and everyone at school. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you, you freak? So I was always immersed in books or in movies or in records. I always felt like I had too much emotion. <laughs> like I had too much intuition and too many fantasies and too much empathy for people across the world. I, I just didn't know what to do with all of this stuff to fit practically <laughs> and functionally in the social circles around me in 
in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1980. I remember hearing that song that Don McLean uh, wrote about Vincent Van Gogh. And the whole song is about how, Vincent, you were just too much for this world, you know? And I was like, oh my God, I, I think I understand that. Because I remember sometimes feeling like, Jesus Christ, it feels like everyone else is living in the first 10 minutes of the Wizard of Oz, you know? Everyone else is living in this kind of mundane, sort of black and white, very conformist, very kind of rote, routine, kind of shallow and kind of a, I don't know, surfacey world. Whereas I felt like inside me were like witches and flying monkeys and, and fields full of opium. So. One day, one day, I am down there in the basement and I am Sweeney Todd. I am absolutely furious because I am declaring that they all deserve to die. When all of a sudden I turn around, there's my brother Peter. And I, I went pale in the face. I was so ashamed, so embarrassed. I was in the middle of this rage, this incredibly dramatic epiphany is what it's called, I think, right? The end of act one of uh, Sweeney Todd. And I, I was shocked. He had this look on his face like, what the fuck is up with you? You fucking freak. And I, I turned the stereo off, I turned the music off, and I said, what? And he said, wow, a real Hamlet here. And then he went upstairs and yelled, hey, we got a real Hamlet downstairs. <laughs> well, of course, I was so immersed in books and theater that I knew who Hamlet was. So there's a part of me that might have thought, right? Oh my God, what a great psychoanalytical point you're making, Pete. <laughs> he, he was too emotional. He was too heavy hearted. He was too torn to pieces by his own inability to just be decisive and function in the real world, right? But of course that's not what my brother meant. My brother didn't know who the fuck Hamlet was. He meant, you're a faggot. He meant, he meant you are such a drama queen. This is like this theater kind of stuff and it's such a bizarre mess. So I almost felt like crying. You know, I, I could feel that my face was tingling with that kind of pale, rage and I sat down on the shag carpet and I was like don't cry don't cry boys don't cry boys don't cry I said Kevin you need a plan you've got to come up with a plan you're 10 years old it's gonna be a long time before you can leave Ohio and go to college, right? You have to figure out how not to be yourself until then, until you can get out of here. You have to figure out like a formula 
for fitting in and conforming and just behaving the way the other boys behave around here. So I was like, all right, what can I do? What's the most conformist, the most regular boy sort of thing I could possibly do to work on this, right? To suppress who I am. And I realized it was, of course, sports. You know, I wanted to be like, you know, the, the movie, The Stepford Wives. I wanted to see if I could become, if, if there was a version that was called like the Stepford Boys, right? Only it's about boys in Ohio in 1980. I wanted to be like that, you know, like just the blank, not thinking of anything, obsessed with shit that doesn't matter, like who won this or that game, right? I hated sports. I, I just wasn't at all interested in them. They gave me anxiety because they brought out so much toxic masculinity and bullying and competitiveness that, oh my God, <laughs> when you're someone who is as weird as me, you don't want competition because, you know, you just don't fit. You just want to be like, let me just compete with myself for Christ's sake. So anyway, I, I joined the soccer team. Now, let's not kid ourselves. This was the fourth time. This was the fourth time. Uh, second grade was football. Uh, third grade was basketball. Uh, fourth grade was baseball. And so <laughs> fifth grade, I was like, all right, fuck it. Those were all total disasters. But surely, surely I can make being on the soccer team work, right? Okay. I sign up for the fifth grade boys soccer team at St. Catharines and day one, Mr. Becker, the coach, was just like out of casting the guy that you would choose to be the ultimate nightmare, right? He was like no one knew who Dennis Leary was back then, but now in my imagination, he's played by Dennis Leary. He was... <laughs> always angry and he had this really sarcastic tone about various like what's this fruitcake doing you know and he would often just explode at us but one day this is like a month and a half into practices so it's getting very near to an actual game right it's getting pretty intense and i still didn't really even know like how the game was played because you know when you're kind of in your own universe, people kind of keep you out of the loop on some of the more, uh, you know, important details. So, you know, I was just getting by as best as I could, keeping my head down, you know, trying to be agreeable, not trying to be unusual in any way. And there came this day that Mr. Becker lost his mind. I had never seen someone so angry. He brought all the boys together. You see, one of the boys had worn a t-shirt with long sleeves. And Mr. Becker said, boys, how many goddamn times have I told you that you are never, ever to wear anything to a soccer practice other than a short sleeve t-shirt your St. Kate shorts, your tube socks, and your cleats. Never, ever, 
any other kind of clothing. No exceptions between now and the end of the season. It went through it again and again. Short sleeve shirt, your St. Kate shorts, your tube socks, your cleats, nothing else ever. If you come wearing any other sort of apparel, you are off the team. So we're walking away from practice and I say to my friend, Jimmy, you think something else is going on in Mr. <laughs> Becker's life? Like maybe he's getting divorced or something? And Jimmy said, you are such a freak. How did you misunderstand that? He made it very clear He's upset that that guy wore a long sleeve t-shirt. I was like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 whatever. One week, it was only one week. It was seven days later. Seven days later, there was a cold snap in Cincinnati, Ohio. Very, very unseasonably cold. It was bitingly, brutally cold out. The kind of cold that goes through your bones. So there were phone calls happening between the boys. Surely soccer practice is canceled, right? Soccer practice has got to be canceled. But no, there was no canceling of the practice. It was just going to go on as normal. So I put on my short sleeve t-shirt, my St. Kate shorts, my tube socks and my cleats. And I headed out the door and it was about six blocks between my house and Ryan Park, where we would have our practices. And there's a big hill I had to climb. And I am telling you, I have never felt more like Job, you know, more like, <laughs> Why am I doing this thing that I never really wanted to do in the first place? My God, what am I suffering through? There were tears coming down my face because not even so much the emotion, but just the sheer bitter cold I was making my way through. And here's the part of the story that is just quintessential, quintessential. As I'm approaching, everyone's huddled in the same huddle that they were huddled in for the speech about the exact clothing we were never to, with any exception, <laughs> wear. But of course, everyone, Mr. Becker, the assistant coach, the 14 or 15 other boys, were right there in their thermal underwear and their jackets and their gloves and their hats and their, uh, you know, sweaters and their sweatpants and pretty much every kind of apparel that you could imagine gathered for practice there that day. And as I got closer and closer, everyone turned around and Mr. Becker had that expression on his face. That expression of, oh my God, what the fuck is wrong with you? He said to me, Allison, why 
on earth would you possibly dress like that today? And I said, because last week you said never would there be any exception between that day and the end of the soccer season for anyone to ever wear anything other than what I'm wearing right now. And he said, yeah, but did you notice? It's cold today! <laughs> and the entire team just burst out laughing at me. Aww. And he said, why don't you go home and warm up my very interesting little friend? Oh. And so I turned around and I walked home. And this time I was crying, not just from the cold, but from the shock of the theater there that I had just been through. And I went home and I wrote in my journal because of course 10 year old me was a very studious keeper of journals. Uh, I said, I feel like today is my life story. <laughs> I feel like today is like, kind of like the crux of it all, isn't it? And that is the reason that for the past 11 years, whenever I scrolled past all those story ideas and came from, you know, soccer practice cold day, I was like, oh God, oh God, no, no, I, I can't go there because after all, like, I haven't really solved that one, have I? Like, I never have gotten to the point where I feel like, yeah, I, I, I completely understand all of how emotional I am and how imaginative I am and how intuitive I am and all these things. And I know, I know how to take those things and, and work them into something I can put out into the world and really function well in regular, normal, conformist, routine society, right? I feel like, no, no, I'm always kind of like, a tug of war like Hamlet being pulled this way and that, not quite figuring out what the fuck to do with it all, right? So maybe, maybe someday I'll figure it out. And maybe on that day, I can live happily ever after. <laughs>
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sly and the Family Stone with the song that was number one the day that I was born. And you know, the weird audio quality on some of those recordings from some of our live streams, it just reminds me to say thank you all so, so, so much for coming out to those live stream shows. They have been really memorable, really helpful, and I don't know, just uh, there's just something very special about them, even though the recording quality of them is so <laughs> odd. But I think we've all gotten a little bit used to that. We still have ones to run. You know, we're phasing out of doing it exactly that way, but we still have some wonderful moments from our live streams to share with you. Remember, we always want you to be sharing your stories with us if you go to risk-show.com slash submissions or risk-show.com slash anecdotes. Those are the longer sort of stories for submissions, the shorter sort of stories for anecdotes. There's all kinds of information there on the site, risk-show.com. You can also follow us on our socials. We're at Risk Show for Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. But if you want to reach out to me about something risk related, just email me at Kevin at Risk Show.com. The Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook is a great place to talk to other fans about the podcast. And our subreddit is Risk Podcast. And folks, did you know that you can hire me personally for storytelling training? You might be working on a memoir or a solo show or a story you're prepping for Risk or another show or whatever it might be. I am at KevinAllison.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Thank you for letting me be myself again. Thank you for letting me be myself again. Thank you for letting me be myself. But still, hear me roar. Now!